and verse 33. Just one scripture. It is a familiar scripture. Scripture I've preached from many, many, many times. And yet I feel drawn back to it again tonight. And there's a reason for it. There's a purpose behind it. And um, so I, uh, I want to try to deliver the burden of my heart tonight. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 33. Matthew 6 and 33, Jesus says, but seek ye first. Everyone say first. Seek ye first. Now, I know you're standing. I've got so much to say that maybe if I put some of it during the reading of the text, you won't think I'm preaching nearly as long. Um, but I've, I've, I've told you before that Jesus always chose his words carefully. Now there have been times I've said things and then afterwards I've had to come back and say, you know, that didn't come out exactly the way I meant it. I know none of you ever have that problem. Um, but some of you do. And uh, uh, what Jesus said, he always was careful and cautious. And, and in fact, he said, the words that I speak, I speak not of myself. But the father that dwelleth in me, he's the one that's really motivating and driving everything that I'm doing and saying the spirit that resides within me. He's saying nothing that I said is, is generated solely by the power of my flesh. But it's all coming from the spirit. And so the spirit instructs us to seek first. Everyone say first. Do you understand the significance of that? Now look, second is close. But it's not first. Well, that's, that's simple. I know it is. But I'm telling you, we, we need to understand what Jesus is telling us here. He said, seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then notice he did not say and seek second the things that you need. In fact, he never gives us a second thing to seek. And normally if you're going to say something is first, there are other things that will follow. But Jesus never tells us to seek after anything except his kingdom and his righteousness. And he said, let everything else just take care of itself. Seek first the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom. First, the kingdom. Oh, I feel this tonight. 
first the kingdom. And all these things shall be added unto you. Not because you're seeking them. In fact, let me just throw it out there tonight. If you start seeking these things, they're going to be elusive. You're not going to find the things. Because God doesn't want you seeking things. He wants you seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And then he's going to take care of the things. So I want to take those three words tonight and make that my title. First, the kingdom. First, the kingdom. Well, praise God. Would you put your Bibles down and lift your hands, lift your voices. Let's ask the Lord to talk to us tonight. I need his help. I need your help. Let's everybody put our hearts into this. Amen. Let's let the Lord talk to us tonight. name in Jesus name come on let's worship him together everybody let's worship him together I love you praise God praise God God bless you you may be seated tonight now I obviously am taking my main thought from Matthew 6 and 33 and I hope you have not yet closed your Bibles, because I want to talk to you about this verse, but I want us to really understand exactly what it is the Lord is saying to us in the midst of it. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight that you can never understand a text if you don't first understand the context. You got to understand the setting in which a verse is given before you can understand the verse. That's why so many people get John 3.16 wrong. Because they take that one verse out of its context. And I'm telling you, you can't understand John 3.16 if you haven't been through John 3 and 5 and John uh, 3 and 8. If you haven't been through those verses of Scripture, you're going to get the wrong understanding of what verse 16 means. And you can't really understand Matthew 6 and 33 if you don't understand the setting of this verse and what exactly Jesus is saying. Now, it's a powerful verse in and of itself. It's a verse that many of you know and could quote. But I'm telling you, for us to really comprehend the magnitude of what this verse is telling us, we have to first go back and read the setting in which it's given to us. Stay with me tonight. All right, read for me. Let's back up. You got your Bibles? Got your Bibles? 
Hallelujah. Let's start. Matthew 6, verse, what is it, 25. Let's start there. Let's begin reading. Matthew 6 and 25. Therefore I say unto you. Now, now get the, please understand, church. Listen to me. We're getting to verse 33, but I want you to hear what Jesus says leading us up to that point. So he starts out in verse 25 saying, therefore I say unto you. Take no thought take, for your life. Take how many thoughts? Take no thought for your life. What you shall eat. What you shall eat. What you shall drink. What you shall drink. Nor yet for your body. Nor yet for your body. What you shall put what on. What you shall put on. Read. Is not the life is more than Is not meat? life more than meat. And the body And the raiment? body more than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air. Take a look at the birds of the air. For they sow not. They don't sow. Neither do they reap. They don't reap. Nor gather into barns. They don't gather into barns. Yet they don't do one thing. That's of real benefit to us. And yet. Yet your heavenly, your father, heavenly father feedeth them. Feeds them. Are you not much better than Aren't they? Aren't you much better than the birds? Read. Which of you by taking Which of you one by cubit worrying about it can stature. add one little cubit to your stature? Mm -hmm. Read. And why take you thought for the rain? Why do you worry about what you're going to wear? Consider the little. Why are you so. Field. Oh, I could really preach right now. Why are you so consumed with the latest fads? Why is it you got to spend so much money on getting the latest thing that looks so nice? Why are you so worried about that? Hello. In a little while, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about one of the battles of the Civil War, but I'm about to start one right now. Hallelujah. Why do you take thought for raiment? What did he say? Consider the lilies. Take of the field. one good look at the flowers. How they grow. They grow. They toil not. They don't work. Neither do they spin. They're not involved in any kind of labor. And yet I say unto and you. And yet I'm telling you. That even Solomon, that even in, all Solomon glory, in all of his glory. Wasn't arrayed, like, wasn't arrayed one like one of these. Read. Wherefore if God. Wherefore the if of the God closed the grass of the field. Which today is. Which today tomorrow is. is cast and tomorrow is cast in the oven. Shall he not. Isn't God going to give you what you need to wear? Come on, you work two jobs so you can dress in the nicest fashion. Why? What's the purpose in it? Why don't you let God take care of, I'm not telling you not to work because he that doesn't work, neither should he eat. But we shouldn't be so consumed with looking nice and making the best presentation of, of, of the things that we possess. That we're spending our energies on those things. There's something far more important than our appearance. There's something far more important than even our food. This is what he's telling us. Read. 
Oh ye of little faith. Oh ye of little faith. Therefore take no thought. Therefore again he says take no thought. Saying what saying what eat? shall we eat? Or what shall, or we, what drink? shall we drink? Or wherewithal, or wherewithal shall, we shall we be clothed? For after all, For after these, all these, these things. Now listen, we're trying to get to verse 33 where he said these things will follow you. And here's what he tells us about things. He said it's these things that the Gentiles or the nations seek after. Read. For your because your heavenly Father, father that knows need that you have need these of all these things. Here's what Jesus says in these verses. He said, I want you to take a good look at the birds. I want you to look at the, at the flowers of the ground. I want you to understand that God takes care of them and he will take care of you. He gives us explicit instructions that our focus is not to be on the here and now. It's not to be on the temporal. It's not to be on making ourselves look good or making ourselves feel good. Now, clothing and food are necessary items, but Jesus said God knows that they're necessary and God's going to make sure that if you do what's right, you're going to get what you need. But he said that shouldn't be your focus. That should not be what you're, I'm preaching to somebody here tonight. That should not be what you're living for. Hear me tonight. There ought to be something bigger in your mind that you're working your job for. It shouldn't be so you can have nice things and impress everybody else. That's not what you ought to be working that's not what you ought to be trying to put money in your bank account. But he said there's something else you ought to be seeking after. There's something else that every moment of your life ought to be focused on. Oh, help me, Jesus. I told you I may start a civil war before we're done. But I'm going to preach on because I feel this tonight. Now that leads us up to verse 33. Verse 34, he says this. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow. Again, he tells us, don't take any thought for tomorrow. For tomorrow because take tomorrow is going to take of thought for the things of itself so and sufficient, sufficient unto the, the day is the, the evil thereof. I'm telling you, this whole passage is get your eyes off of this world. Get your eyes off of today. Get your eyes, amen, off of what is bothering you and what you think you want and what you think you need and get your eyes on something bigger. you got to get a big picture. you got to understand there is a kingdom that we're a part of and you need to be doing everything you're doing for the good of the kingdom oh hear me saints of God I'm telling you I know I know how some people will classify what I'm telling you but if I've ever felt anything I feel this tonight the job that you work ought to be so you can help the kingdom the things that you do ought to be so you can help the kingdom the schooling the education you get ought to be so you can help the Everything you're doing ought to be focused on the kingdom. You seek the kingdom and God will make sure you get what you need. You seek the kingdom and God will take care of every other problem. But see, we don't think in terms of kingdom. We think in terms of us. We think in terms of individual. 
we think in terms of family. And we got to care for our family. If a man doesn't care for his family, he's worse than an infidel. But there's a bigger picture than your family. Well, the soldiers are suiting up. Hallelujah. If you're ready, I just hope you're fighting on my side. What color is that jacket you got on? Yeah, what's the main color? I was thinking it's gray. I thought, man, we got the blue and the gray sitting up here on the platform. I got to be careful what side I'm, what, what, what I preach tonight. Praise God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see where I'm, you see where I'm, I understand, I understand. All right. All right, all right. Now look, here's what you've got to see. Jesus was very clear in his statement that the first thing and really the only thing we ought to be concerned about is the kingdom. That's the only thing we ought to even be thinking of, the kingdom. What I'm about to do, how does it affect the kingdom? What I'm involved in right now, how does it affect the kingdom? Uh, let me just, let me just, I know he doesn't want me to do this. Let me just brag on Brother Chad for just a minute. Just a few weeks ago, I was standing at the airport and he called me and he said, Pastor, I just need to talk to you. I need some advice. He said, uh, there's some jobs that are open up. Uh, there, there, there's some positions open up at my job and I need some advice and I need God to direct me in what's best for the church at this moment. I like that. I believe that's the way it ought to be. Not which one's going to best accommodate my schedule, which one's going to be more comfortable for me. But what does the church need me doing right now? That's what I'm trying to get across to you. This has got to become the perspective of the people of God. We've got to seek first and only the kingdom of God. And let God take care of everything else. See, what he's saying is you got to get a big picture. Listen to me, saints of God. I know this is going to come as a blow to some people. But you weren't put on this earth to make you happy. Well, I'm just not happy in this. Well, I just don't like this. I'm trying to be sweet about it. See the smile? I'm trying to be sweet. But you weren't put here so you could be happy. God didn't put you here so you could please yourself or even so you could please your family. God's got another purpose for putting you here. Thank you to the three people who said that's right. It's true. Listen to what the book of Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says this. Revelation 4 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord. Thou art worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power. Mm -hmm. For thou has created all things. For thou has created all things. Oh, we know that, don't we? Thou has created all things, read. And for thy pleasure. And for thy they are pleasure. They are. And were created. And were created. Brother Merriman, the reason God put you on the earth is because he wants to derive pleasure out of what you get accomplished. 
He didn't do it so you could be happy. You being happy is just a, a side benefit, but that's not the focus and that's not the goal. And I'm going to tell you that sometimes making God happy means making ourselves unhappy. Oh, I'm fighting some resistance here tonight, but I'm telling you the truth. We were not created for our own benefit, nor for our own pleasure, but we were created for his pleasure. And everything we do and the focus of our life ought to be, I want to make God happy. I want God to be pleased. I want God to smile at what I'm doing, at the choices I'm making, at the words that I'm speaking, at the places I'm going, at the things I'm reading, at the things I'm looking at, at the things I'm thinking about. I want God to take pleasure out of what I'm doing. I'm telling you, church, based on our text, the way that we're going to please him is when we start advancing his kingdom not our positions but his kingdom and sometimes advancing his kingdom means us taking a little lower position or a lot lower position but the focus is the kingdom the kingdom the kingdom the kingdom oh praise God all right, if you don't like it so far, you're going to hate it before I'm done. But I'm telling you, we've got to lose our perspective of how will this affect me? What is this going to do for me? How will this hurt me? We've got to get our eyes off of that. And we've got to start thinking, how will this affect the kingdom? How is this going to affect the church? How is this going to affect the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in at this moment? How's it going to affect the big picture? For almost a solid year now, in almost a year, I have been preaching to this church, telling you we are in a warfare, in a major, this is not just a battle. You understand the difference between a battle and a war? Some of you don't, but you need to. A war is made up of many battles. Some of you get focused only on the battle. And I'm telling you, we're in a war. Do you understand what that means? That means we may win a battle tonight. But that does not mean that the war is over. Furthermore, we may lose a battle tomorrow. But that doesn't mean the war is over. Well, hallelujah. We got to understand we're in the midst of a war. This is a war. And we got to get the perspective. How will my decision affect the outcome of this war? What I want to do right now, how's that going to affect the outcome of the war? If I fail to pray tomorrow morning, how does that affect the outcome of the war? 
If I don't fast this week, how's that going to affect the outcome of the war? I fall behind in my Bible reading. How does that affect the outcome of the war? See, we're thinking me, 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 me. We got to get that out of our heads. We got to get a perspective. First, the kingdom. First, the kingdom. First, the kingdom. First, the kingdom. Come on, somebody. I want you to say it. First, the kingdom. Say it again. First, the kingdom. Oh, I feel like preaching here tonight. I hope you're not in a hurry. I feel like preaching here tonight. Hallelujah. We got to get a mindset of first, the kingdom. Now listen to me. I don't like I don't like to, to get too far away from scripture. And you know that. In fact, even this morning as I was teaching, I, I mentioned to you, and those of you that have been around here for any amount of time agreed with the fact that that my style of preaching and teaching is to give you scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. That's the way I do it. It's the way I like to do it. It's the way I believe it should be done. But tonight's message slash lesson, whatever, is going to require that I, I look at some other things and I'm going to bring scripture into it, all right? But I'm going somewhere. We are in a war. We're in a battle, but the battle is, is just part of a bigger war. And, and look... I know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And, and I think it was last Sunday night we sang it that, you know, the weapons we use are not bombs and guns. Right? And so there are some things about physical warfare that do not apply to spiritual warfare. Some things that don't apply. Some things that are not analogous. But there are a lot of principles of war in the physical realm that can and should be applied to spiritual warfare. Are you with me? Now, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, we had to go to the funeral of my brother-in-law and uh, um, my, my wife's sister, husband passed away uh, in his early 50s and we went up for the funeral and we were close enough we had one day ticket prices air, airplane tickets uh, the prices were $250 cheaper if we stayed one extra day beyond what we were planning to do and so you know $250 per person that's $500 that's a sizable savings so I figured we could spend one more day and save $500 even even a night in a motel wasn't going to cost me $500. I don't stay in those kind. Maybe you do. I don't. All right. Um, in fact, I stayed, I stayed in one just a few weeks ago. Didn't even have running water. Uh, admittedly, that was in Africa, but, but it's still a fact. Um, but anyhow, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but, but we decided to take that extra day and it was about, I think a three hour drive. Is that right? About a three hour drive from my sister-in-law's house down to the Gettysburg battlefield. 
the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, such a vital part of the United States Civil War. And, and when I was there and I was touring those sites, and I'm telling you, this is one thing that, that it seems to me our government has gotten right in that that battlefield, they have done their very best to preserve it in every way. They're not letting people go in and build houses. You know, even on Normandy Beach, they've sold part of Normandy Beach and set up um, hotels on Normandy Beach. That's true. That's, that's true. Thankfully, it's not that way in Gettysburg. They've tried to keep the landscape exactly as it was in the 1860s. Many of the houses uh, that stood are still standing. For the most part, when you travel there, you're going to see a lot of the same thing that the men who fought at Gettysburg saw. And walking through those places and visiting those sites, something began to stir within me. And as I began to, to find out more about it, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, um, I love history. But I don't, I don't spend a lot of my spare time looking into history. Uh, usually what happens is I make a trip like this and it stirs me up and I'll do what research I can and, and learn about that and, and then wait until the next time I get to go see a site. That's kind of my, my whole pursuit of history. But, but generally in those times when something really starts to consume me, it's because there's a message in there somewhere that God's trying to give me. In fact, as we were going through the Civil War Museum, I turned to my wife and I said, there's a sermon in here somewhere. I, I know there's a sermon in here somewhere. Uh, it happened to me several years ago. We went to Washington, D.C. for the first time. And, and uh, I, I don't want to get into all that, but we were at the Capitol building, had just come out of, of uh, uh, where Congress meets, and, and just a few moments... Just a few moments uh, after we, uh, or, or before we had been there, I didn't realize it. That was the day, this was back in the, in the 1990s, that was the day that the House of Representatives voted to impeach Bill Clinton. And uh, we were coming down the steps uh, out of that visitor's uh, galley, and a news reporter stopped me, and she was all upset Bill Clinton's been impeached, and, and uh, she said, do you think this country's going to survive? And I was so upset by that question, because I had just been to Arlington National Cemetery. I, I, you know, I, I'd just been down to Fort McHenry. I, I'd seen all the things that the United States had survived, and I'm thinking, the, we've had other presidents impeached. Nixon not only was impeached, but resigned, and and and... This is not going to destroy this country. And so anyhow, it started working on me, and I preached a sermon from that. Um, that's been a while back, but it's, it's on record, and I, I preached it. So here we are again, and I'm walking through this battleground. In fact, the, the, the National Cemetery at Gettysburg is actually on the site of the major battle that took place there and uh, what happened there were so many bodies piled up that they were having to just dig graves right there and just put them in the ground they couldn't get rid of all the bodies that 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 were lying there uh, dead as a result of the battle that took place and they decided to make this a national cemetery it was the first national cemetery the United States ever created 
All right. It's a very significant place. And, and this was a significant battle. So please bear with me. I want to try to do this and not bore you, but there are points that I want to make along the way. Are you ready to go with me for just a few moments here tonight? Will you, will you give me just a little bit of time? Uh, I want to, I want to get through this, but, but let me give you a little background into this particular battle. The Civil War itself began on April the 12th of 1861, and it lasted through May 13th of 1865. You can do the math. That's just over four years. That's a lengthy battle. It's a lengthy war. All right, not battle, but war. That was a war, and it lasted just over four years. That's a long time. I want you to think back. Many of you can remember the Iraq War. I believe it or not, Brother Merriman, there are young people here that weren't born when that took place. And here you fought over there. Does that make you feel old? Good. I mean, I start talking about the 1970s and people say, I wasn't born yet. Shut up. I can't help it that you're a baby. You'll grow up one day. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. I got to be careful here. I'll lose the anointing. I got to be careful. But now, 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 the the Iraq War. If you'll remember nine eleven, how many of you remember nine eleven? What happened September the eleventh of nine uh, of of two thousand and one? And 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 you'll remember that the whole attitude of the United States. I don't care. Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, I don't care. The whole attitude was go after them. We can't let this happen. Right? But we weren't 30 days into that war and the news media is calling off body counts. 30 days after we've been attacked on our own soil and people are saying we got to end this. This is going way too long. This is lasting way too long. I want you to imagine a war on our own soil lasting four long years. Now, the Battle of Gettysburg was almost exactly in the middle of the Civil War. Civil War started in 1861, ended in 1865. The Battle of Gettysburg took place July 1st through the 3rd, 1863. Two years after it started, two years before it ended. Are you with me? Now listen to me. There are different accounts as to how many people died. Some say uh, a little over 600,000. Some say uh, 700, 750,000. I don't know. But let's take a conservative number of 625,000 that most historians say died in the Civil War. 625,000. Now let me tell you, that's more Americans than what died in both world wars, Korea and Vietnam combined. Furthermore, when you're talking 625,000 men, that was 2% of the population. To put that in today's numbers, Brother Merriman, it would be like having a war and losing 6 million men. What do you think would be going through our minds when we've lost 6 million of our brothers, 
sisters and fathers and, and, and mothers and aunts and uncles and cousins. Six million. The casualties in Gettysburg alone were over 50,000. Just in Gettysburg in three days' time. General Robert E. Lee, the, the, the uh, Confederate commander, lost one-third of his army in that one battle. All right? I'm just setting the stage. This was a major battle. It was the bloodiest battle ever fought on American soil. Now, there's some things that I, I want to I say. Please hear me out. History is written by the winners of the wars. And so it's told only from their perspective. But, and I'm not defending the South in, in, in slavery. It was detestable. It was wrong. It was disgusting. It was abominable. All right, everybody understands that? I, I didn't get enough amens. Do you understand? That's the way I feel about it. I'm not justifying slavery. But what I do want you to understand is the reason that so many of these Southerners were willing to die. It wasn't just about slavery to them. In fact, even today, you talk to uh, Civil War history buffs or historians from the South, and they don't call it the Civil War. They call it the War of Northern Aggression. And the reason that they call it that is because they say that the federal government violated the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution is clear. Anything not specifically addressed within the Constitution would be left to the states to decide. That's in the Constitution. If the, if the Constitution doesn't specifically address it, the states can decide how they want to handle it. And when the federal government said, that doesn't count for slavery, the South said, uh-uh. We see this as an attempt to violate the Constitution and take away our rights. Now, the rights they wanted were wrong. Everybody hear me. What they're fighting for is wrong. But their attitude, this was not just about slaves to them. You understand that we're less than 100 years removed from the Revolutionary War at this point. 1776 is when we declared independence, but the war didn't end for another several years. This war is 1861, less than 100 years after the Revolutionary War. We're talking about men that are living now during the Civil War whose parents, grandparents, great-grandparents fought or at least were alive during the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary War was because a government overstretched itself and overreached its bounds and put demands on people that, that the people did not want. And they fought for independence from a controlling government. In fact, what, what very few folks even realize, the great seal of the Confederate States of America included a picture of George Washington.
they felt like this was the second war of independence. All right? It was a second revolutionary war for them. That's the way they felt about it. I'm not telling you they're right. Don't anybody think I'm supporting them. But I'm just trying to explain the mindset and why men were willing to give their lives. They weren't just giving their lives to keep slaves. They were giving their lives to try to keep the federal government out of their lives. And out of the lives of their children. All right. I don't defend them. But I said that to say that as I go forward in this lesson, I'm going to pull things from both the North and the South. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm glorifying the South nor defending slavery. It's wrong. It's detestable. It's abominable. What else can I say? In fact, prejudice is just as wrong and just as detestable and just as abominable. All right, am I making myself clear enough? But there were some things that the South did right as far as warfare. And there were some things they did wrong. And can I tell you that really, in a lot of ways, the war, the Civil War, was decided at the Battle of Gettysburg. In a lot of ways, this one battle, which only lasted three days, became the pivotal point that decided the outcome of whether we would be one nation or two. A three-day battle. Is everybody with me? I hope you're not bored already because I had not even got started yet. Now, I want you to think about the odds of this. The northern states had a population at that time of about 22 million. The southern state's population was about 9 million, but of those, 3 to 4 million were slaves, which were not allowed to fight. So when you talk about populations from which men were able to be drawn, you got 22 million to about um, six, 5 or 6 million in the south. 4 to 1 odds. Furthermore, the north was mostly manufacturing, and that included manufacturing arms. The cannons, the muskets, the bullets, the overwhelming majority of artillery was made in the north. In fact, every month, one manufacturing plant uh, in the north turned out about 10 times what the major manufacturing uh, artillery plant turned out in the South in a year. So I'm telling you, the odds were bad. But the South was willing to fight this because remember, we're less than 100 years removed from the American Revolution. And do you remember the odds then? For this fledgling group of men, most of them untrained to fight against Great Britain, the empire to be reckoned with in the world at that time, and yet they won. And the South is looking at that and saying, if we did it in 1776, we can do it in 1860. And so the odds didn't matter to them, but it did matter to the generals. And so 
General Robert E. Lee had a plan. We're going to talk about that plan in just a moment. But he had a plan. He knew he couldn't outnumber the North. He knew he didn't have the supplies. He didn't have the finances. He didn't have the, men, the manpower to outdo the North. But he did have a plan. And his plan almost worked. Now, let me, again, I, don't, I hope I'm not boring you with any of this. But, 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 you know, if you're a physicist, the most important formula to you is E equals MC squared. Now that's, that's crucial to a physicist. To a military strategist, and I learned this from a man who teaches at the U.S. Army War College. He said that, that to a military strategist, the most important formula is this. And hear me, church. This is where we're about to take this into a spiritual realm. All right? Everybody's with me? Listen to what he said. He said the most important formula to a military strategist is the power of resistance equals means times will. Now let me explain that to you. When you're looking at your enemy, deciding whether or not you can win against your enemy, there are two factors involved. Number one, their means. That is their resources. How many soldiers do they have? How many weapons do they have? What's their artillery like? How well trained are they? Their means. But there's a second factor, and that is their will. Oh, hallelujah. Their desire to win. So they can have a huge amount of resources. But if you understand anything, where's my mathematician? If you understand anything about math, Mr. This Many, <laughs> anything multiplied by zero becomes zero. Right? I don't care if you're talking 20 billion. 20 billion times zero is zero. And so to a military strategist, they can have all the resources they want if they don't have the will. Because if will is zero, then the equation ends up zero. And so generally, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. Generally said, I know they've got far more men. They've got far stronger weapons. They've got greater power. But one thing I can work on, and that's their will. And if I can just wear them down, if I can just get them to the place that they decide they're just tired of this battle, they're just tired of fighting. If I can just pick a few off at a time, a few off at a time, let them see enough bloodshed. Let them see enough losses until finally they lose the will to try. That's all it's going to take. And I'll defeat the army of the north. Oh, hallelujah. By 1863, at the time of Gettysburg, as I said, this is halfway through the war. By 1863, the northern will was eroding. They'd already lost thousands of their men. 
cost was, was getting outrageous. President Lincoln had been elected in 1860 on an anti-slavery platform. And it was his election that caused southern states to start seceding from the Union. Lincoln won the presidency without one single southern electoral vote. And they started pulling away. But I'm telling you, now he was elected in 60, 1860. November of 1860. He took office in January of 1861. April of 1861, the war began. Three months after he's sworn into office, the nation is at war with itself. All right? Two years into that war, and Lincoln's not backing down. He's not giving up. He refuses to quit. And a congressman stands on the floor of the Congress and begins to blast Lincoln. You've spent money without reserve. You've shed blood till it's run in the streets. You don't care about this nation. You're just trying to prove a point. And all of the Democrats stood to their feet and applauded. And I'm not trying to promote any kind of party nor attack. I'm just telling you the facts of history, all right? Lincoln was the first Republican ever, ever elected. And I'm not supporting political parties. I'm just telling you the facts of history, all right? And, and so, but what happened was some of his own party listened to that speech and said, you know what, America is not ready for this to continue. And they started removing their backing from Lincoln. Lincoln's going to have to run for office again. He's going to try for re-election in 1864. We're in 1863 at Gettysburg. Are you with me? We're getting close to another election, and the people are not supporting Lincoln. Things are looking bad because he refuses to give in on this point. Northern will is falling away. It's at this point that General Lee decides, I'm pressing north. We've been trying to keep the northern armies out of the south. It's time for us to go on the offensive. And we're going up into the northern territory, and we're going to take Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, capital city of Pennsylvania. We're going to go in and take that city. And they start marching. He amasses the best army he can get, and they start moving northward toward Harrisburg. But there's some problems. One is he's relying on the cavalry. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but in fact, I did get ahead of myself. Let me back up. Lee's whole idea was I'm going to wear them down. I'm going to wear them down. I can't defeat them. I don't have the power to defeat them, so I'm just going to wear them down. Can I tell you, here's point number one, church. This is something we need to understand in the war we're in. That's exactly what the devil wants to do to the saints of God. Read for me Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. And he shall speak He'll great speak words great words against the most, against high. The most high. And, shall and he's going to wear out the saints of the, the most high. high. 
and think to change times and laws. Hang on. I want you to see what Daniel said was going to happen. He's going to do his best to just wear you out. Look, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hear me. Hell is not strong enough to defeat us. Hell cannot overthrow the church. But I tell you what hell can do. It can get you wore out. It can get you so tired, so weary of fighting that you just don't want to fight anymore. As long as you've got the will, you can win. As long as you've got the desire, you can fight. As long as there's something in you that says, I'm not giving up. I don't care what happens. It's worth fighting. I'm telling you, saints of God, we've got the power to do it. Now look, we've been given the resources too. We've got all the resources we need. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 11 to 17. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take Wherefore unto take you the whole armor, the of, whole God, armor of God. That you may be able to now withstand. listen, he said, with this armor, you are able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all. And having done all. Stand. Stand. Stand therefore. Stand therefore. Having, having your loins girt about with truth. Having on the, having breastplate, on the breastplate of righteousness. Your feet shot, your feet with, the shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all. Above all. Taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able. Are you hearing me? You shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I'm telling you, we've got all the resources we need. If the equation is this, amen, that the power of resistance equals means times will. I'm telling you, we got the means. We've got the means. We've got, oh, somebody hear me. We, there's no shortage on the means. But the one thing we got to determine, do we have the will? Are we willing to keep fighting? I don't care how long the battle goes on. I don't care how many times we got to get up and fight again. Do we have the will to do it? God gave us the means, but means times will is what determines our power of resistance. And if our will is zero, we lose. We can have the greatest weapons in the world, and we do. He said we can withstand all of the devil's darts. He said we can stand. We can stand if we'll use these tools. If we'll put on this armor, Brother Chad, we can make it. There's no question. He didn't say you might be able to. There's a good chance. There's a great possibility. He said you can. God's given you everything you need, all the tools, all the defense, all the weaponry, everything you need to win, God gave it to you. There's just one other factor. Do you have the will? If it drags on another year or another two years or three years, do you have the will to keep fighting? 
if we come back next week, Brother Nelson, and we get in here and try to have church, and boy, that spirit rises up, and we can't hardly even get a hallelujah out. Are we going to be willing to stand on our feet and press our way through again? And if we break through that one, can we come back the following week and do it again? How many Sunday nights can we do it? I'm telling you, we've got the means. The question is, do we have the will? Because if you got the will, combined with the means we've got, we're going to make it. One of the hardest things that affected their willpower was marching across those battlefields and watching their friends and loved ones fall by their side. Sometimes literally heads blown off beside them. Limbs severed. Blood everywhere. People they know and love screaming in pain. Losing one after another, after another, after another. How much can you just keep marching? You see them fall. You see them give up. You see them quit. But do you have the will? Oh, I'm preaching tonight. This may not be my normal style, but I sure feel like I'm in the Holy Ghost right now. Now, let me tell you, Gettysburg was never intended to be a battlefield, not by either side. Neither side intended to fight at Gettysburg. Gettysburg was an insignificant little town. There was no military good in taking Gettysburg. Lee was on his way, as I said, to Harrisburg. He wanted to get the capital of Pennsylvania. He was pressing northward. Up to this time, he's just been fighting the Union troops, keeping them out of the south, trying his best to. And he'd had some tremendous victories leading up to Gettysburg. He really did. He just had a phenomenal victory in Chancellorsburg. But let me just throw this in. This is not in my notes to say, but let me tell you something. He won a phenomenal victory in Chancellorsburg, but he was mad. When it was over, Lee was mad. And here's what he was mad about. They came in and reported, sir, we have won. The Union Army is in retreat. But they have crossed the river and they're on the other side and they got away. The ones that survived got away. That's what made him mad. His attitude was, we may have won this battle, but as long as they keep getting away, we haven't won the war. And it's not enough that I've killed a few here and I've taken a little bit of ground or taken back a little bit of ground. I've got a bigger picture in mind. Listen to me, saints. Sometimes that's where we go wrong. Because we'll fight for one service and go home feeling like, well, boy, we had victory. And then we put it into neutral and coast. One battle does not a war win. All right. All right. That's off the notes. But anyhow. So... So they're on their way to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the capital. Lee wants to start taking northern territory. And he really, his goal, his ultimate goal is Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. That's where he really wants to get to. 
And he's hoping he can hit enough northern cities along the way to deplete, to deplete the Union armies. Now, he's got a man, um, Jeb Stewart, who was doing reconnaissance for him. I don't want to bog you down with a lot of details, all right? I'm trying my best, but this just... This is also interesting to me, and I hope I'm not losing you in all this. But Jeb Stewart was, was, was an accomplished um, reconnaissance man. He was good at what he did. He'd already done this for Lee a couple of times and, and had been successful. It'd take two or three days. He'd scout out the Northern Army, come back, report to Lee, tell him the size, tell him the strength, tell him their position. He told him everything they needed. And, and so Lee is on his way to Harrisburg and he sends Jeb Stewart. And Stewart says, well, look, I know where they're at, but he said, I think the best thing for me to do is to circle way around them and come up from the backside and see them there. And so Lee grants him permission to do that. Now, a couple things come into play here. Number one, in the past, when Jeb Stewart has done this reconnaissance, the armies have been stationary. Now they're on the move. It's going to take him longer than what he thought. That's important. Second thing is the southern army, their, their resources are just about wiped out. Their men are starving. In fact, um, my, my research says they were, they were trapping rats and trying to, to, to broil them over, over open fires just to get something to eat. Some historians say the whole reason that they even went through the town of Gettysburg was that they'd heard that there were shoes being manufactured there, and the southern armies didn't even have shoes. Most of them were marching barefoot. For miles, sometimes 30 miles in a day. All right? So, so Jeb Stewart is doing his reconnaissance. And lo and behold, he spies a supply train. I'm talking about wagons, covered wagons, not choo-choo train, all right? Covered wagons. And Stewart has enough men with his cavalry that he can, he can take those supply wagons. And he said, this is what the South needs right now. We need these supplies. But now remember, he's got a job. Scout out the Northern Army and report back to General Lee. He decides on his own to take these supply wagons. Now he's no longer just a cavalry on horseback. He's got covered wagons he's trying to pull. That slows him down. The northern army's on the move. That slows him down. Where he normally is able to report back to Lee within two to three days, eight days pass before Stuart can make it back to his general. Now let me tell you what happened. In the meantime, as Lee is pressing northward, some of his troops get out just outside of Gettysburg and encounter northern troops coming the other way. They didn't know where the enemy was. Because their scout decided to do something he thought was more important. They needed those supplies, Brother Merriman. They needed, the, there's no doubt they needed the supplies. But getting supplies was not in his orders. And because he decided this is what's best. He didn't get back to General Lee in time to tell him that the north was just over the next hill. And Lee was caught totally off guard at Gettysburg. 
They were not preparing for battle. They should have known. If their reconnaissance man had simply done what he was told. Instead of deciding on his own what's the best action to take. Oh, it's getting quiet in here. See, let me tell you, here's the deal. Jeb Stewart, he was a good man from all I can read. But the thing was, he was not the one in command. And he's focused on one little factor. He's not looking at the big picture of the overall war. And he doesn't realize the bind he's putting the rest of his army in by him being AWOL for a few extra days. Oh, it's getting tight right now. You guys need to get in here and help me right now. I, I, need, I need some reinforcements. Because I'm feeling it right now. Look, I'm talking about first the kingdom. I haven't got off my subject. I'm talking about first the kingdom. First the kingdom. That's Jeb Stewart's problem. He's not thinking the kingdom. He's not thinking the Confederate army. He's thinking about one thing. I need food. The men need food. This is an important need. Yes, it is. But this is not what you were told to do. Is it important? Yes. But it's not what you were told to do. And because you decided what was best, you cost the army. And Lee is now caught off guard. And he's got an enemy he had no idea he was about to face. Shots were fired and a battle broke out in an unexpected place. All because Jeb Stewart took longer than he was supposed to. One man. Are you hearing what I'm saying tonight? I hope you're not bored. One man. One man. made. Now, I'm going to tell you, there were some other decisions that Jeb Stewart made that were really bad. But, but, but again, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. All right, so let me make sure. Um, let's go. I don't, I don't normally preach from this verse of Scripture. You know that this is just not one of those that I preach from, but I'm going to put it in here because it applies. We're trying to put Scripture behind these principles of warfare. Everybody's with me? So what happened with Jeb Stewart? He decided what was best. And in spite of the orders he was given, he decided what needed to be done. Took matters into his own hands and therefore cost his general and his army. What does Hebrews 13, 17 say? Obey them that have the rule over you. Look, we may not like this church, but it's in the Bible. And listen, I want to tell you something. Here's the problem. The devil gets every one of us into this me and my and mine mindset. And all we're thinking about is what's good for me? What do I need? What does my family need? Where are we at at the moment? But you're not thinking in terms of the overall war. Lee had a much bigger picture than what Stuart had. Did the people need supplies? Yes, they needed supplies. But he cost them so much by making a decision that was not based upon the orders given by his general. 
Well, hallelujah. Oh, I feel like I could preach a little bit here. Amen. I've got to move on because time's slipping away. Now, listen, let me tell you, here's something else Stuart did. Stuart had command of seven cavalry regiments. Seven cavalry regiments. He took three with him. How many does that leave? This many, right? Yeah, this many. All right. So I'm going to put him on the spot. He has seven regiments. He took three with him. How many does that leave? Four. Thank you. I'm glad somebody can do some math. So he's got four regiments of cavalry that are not with him. Now, there are two things that need to be done in this war. Number one, the South has, in, in the Shenandoah Valley, they've got artillery and supplies that need to be protected from the northern armies. And this was part of the cavalry's responsibility. So Stuart is going to send two of his regiments to defend the supplies. All right? But Lee also needs reconnaissance. So Stuart does decide to send Lee two of his regiments. But here's the problem with what Stuart did. I hope I can explain this. And you're a military man, and we got Brother Nick out here, and you guys can probably do a better job at explaining all this than I can. But, but, but hear me. General Lee was West Point trained. All right, he was, he was trained. In fact, he was, he was, when he graduated from West Point, he had no demerits whatsoever on his record. Graduated, I think, either second or third in his class. He was brilliant and very trained in the art of war. All right, but he, as a military man, wanted regular army troops. There were regular and there were irregular. Irregular troops were those that were not really under the normal command of the... In other words, they've gathered a group of civilians, have gotten together and formed a regiment or whatever, all right? They're not normal military men. Lee didn't like to use those kinds of men. In fact, one of the things that Lee encountered, and I, could, I should have thrown this into my notes too while I was at it, but I had too many things to throw in there. One of the things that Lee said, he said, one of our problems is that our people hate to work. And he said, nothing is as military as labor. That's what he said. Because see, the South had slaves to do the work for them. So when it came to digging trenches or trying to build up battlements, these army, army men from the South didn't want to do all that work. They'd never handled a shovel. They didn't know how to swing an axe. They'd always had their slaves do all that for them. So they didn't want to work. Well, I should have thrown that into my notes because we could have worked on that for a little while tonight. But anyhow, so, so Lee, already having a problem with his regular soldiers, did not want to use irregular soldiers. All right? Jeb Stewart, remember, has four regiments to divide between protecting supplies and helping Lee. Two of the regiments are regular soldiers. Two are irregular. Lee hates irregular. But guess who Stewart sends to Lee? He sends the two irregular regiments. Lee won't use them. 
You know why he didn't send the regular ones? Now get this. Because he had personal problems with the leaders of those two regiments. One of them had been engaged to the woman he ended up marrying. And he didn't like him because of that. The other one had embarrassed him in front of Lee at one time. And he didn't like him because of that. And so his personal issues with these leaders became more important than the war itself. And Stuart decided, I'm going to send the regular regiments down there just to, just to protect the supplies. And I'm sending to Lee the irregular regiments. Because I don't have anything against their commanders. All right. Ephesians 6 and 12 says this. We wrestle not, against, we wrestle flesh not against flesh and blood. Listen to me, saints of God. The devil knows if he can get us to fighting with one another, to, to having something against one another, that we're going to be cutting one another off, and it's not good for the war. Are you hearing me tonight? Are you ready for me just to quit and preach part two sometime? Are you hearing what I'm saying right now? I'm telling you, it was personal problems with these other commanders that caused Jeb Stewart to send Lee the wrong men. Because he didn't get along with them. He didn't want to take a chance on maybe them doing something where they might get a little credit in this war. So rather than focusing on the war itself, he's focused on his own personal problems. I hope you're seeing the spiritual parallels. I hope I'm explaining it well enough. I'm telling you, this is what the devil does. Brother James, this is what the devil does. He wants you fussing with, with, with Andrew and Andrew fussing with you because then the two of you are not going to work together. It doesn't matter if that's what God needs at the moment. God may need the two of you to bind together in prayer. But no, you got problems with one another. We can't get together. I can't pray with him. I can't fellowship with him. I don't like what he does. I don't like who he likes. Are you hearing me tonight? And so personal problems and personal agendas become more important than the warfare itself. Hallelujah. I got to move on. I've got to move on. Now, the north... The North was not planning to go to Gettysburg. They just, they had, they had some troops that were going through that way on their way down to the South, ran into these Confederate soldiers, ended up firing or one, of, one of the other side. I remember now which one of the sides fired on the other and, and the battle broke out. And so then they had to start trying to contact the other uh, groups, the other divisions, corps, uh, regiments, uh, you guys know all those breakdowns, whatever. But anyhow, they're, they're trying to go back and contact headquarters and contact other leaders and let them know we need reinforcements in Gettysburg. Things are about to get really bad here. And so they're trying to communicate. Now the North had the advantage that they had most of the telegraph equipment in the North. But the South went in and cut the telegraph wires thereby stopping communication with headquarters. This nearly cost the North. 
Because now, the only way they can get word back and forth is by personal delivery. They got to send a horseman. He's got to travel miles. Get word somewhere. The whole battle can change before he can even get back. Because the line of communication was destroyed. Listen to me, church. This is what the devil wants to happen. He wants our line of communication to end. He wants us to quit praying. We're not talking to God. He wants us to quit reading our Bible. God's not talking to us. He wants us to quit coming to church. The Spirit's not speaking to us anymore. I'm telling you what he's doing. He's cutting telegraph wires. He's trying to keep you from getting any kind of word from headquarters. He wants you having to do this on your own without God's help because he knows on your own you're no match for the devil. But as long as headquarters is involved, we can withstand anything that hell throws against us. So what he wants is to cut you off from your communication. All right, I'm trying to get down here to... So, so just stay with me, but let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. We've talked about the, 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 the weapons of our warfare and the, the armor that God gave us. But Paul's not finished yet. Ephesians 6 verses 18 and 19. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth listen, boldly. Listen, listen, listen. Here's what Paul said. He said, all right, God's given you plenty of equipment. God's given you the armor that you need. He's given you the weaponry that you need. But there is something else that we cannot forget about. We got to pray. We got to pray. We got to pray. And he said, furthermore, I need you praying for me. I need you praying. If anything, the devil does not want my commands to get through to the troops. I need you praying that God will give me utterance. I need you praying that God will give me wisdom. That when I stand behind this pulpit, what I'm giving to you is direct from heaven. The devil wants our line of communication cut off. I've talked a lot about the bad decisions made on part of the South. Let me talk about one made on the part of the North that almost cost them this battle. And understand, this is the furthest North the Confederate Army's been. If they lose Gettysburg, they're already losing will among the Northerners. They lose Gettysburg, they're going to lose Harrisburg, they're going to lose this war. All right? General George Meade was just one of the commanders. Lincoln had already been firing generals left and right, it seemed like. I, I can't even imagine the pressure he was under at this point. Meade was there at Gettysburg when he saw someone coming with a message. Meade was preparing himself that he had just gotten fired as well. The messenger came in and said, here's a notice from President Lincoln. You've just been promoted to commander 
of the Army of the Potomac. You're over this entire battle here. Now that's the night that things are getting started. Remember this battle only lasts three days. There had already been firing taking place on July 1st. And it's that evening that Meade gets word he's just been made commander. Meade is no dummy. He is trained. They do have their reconnaissance. I wish in some ways that I had gotten a picture and had them put it up on the wall so you could see. But Gettysburg has a series of hills and mounds throughout the town and and Meade knew if I can take the high ground that's gonna I forgot about brother 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 Weems is there he's a military man as well Meade said if I can take the high ground now they don't have all these lasers and drones and we're talking 1861 all right 1863 at this point and so Meade is looking at his maps and he said here's what I'm going to do I am going to put my troops into a formation that will withstand the southern armies now at this point Meade doesn't have all of the men he's hoping for there are others that are on their way. There are others that are still coming. Remember, the, the first skirmish just took place that day. He's requesting more. He's just now become the commander. He said, I'm going. He looks at the map and he said, I can put my troops in the shape of a fish hook. We got one long string and then it curves. And he said, the direction of, this, of the southern armies, this fish hook will defend this city. And we can hold them off if we can maintain the fish hook. Now there are, there are, uh, at this point, there are uh, six, no, seven, there are seven corps that are gathered here in Gettysburg. And each corps is given a place. Of these seven corps of soldiers, six of them are being led by West Point graduates. Trained military commanders, all right? Six of the seven. The seventh one is a man by the name of Dan Sickles. Dan Sickles was not military trained. Dan Sickles was a wealthy lawyer who had gotten together a group of men and was given a promotion because he bought his way in. Now, let me tell you what Dan Sickles was known for prior to becoming a commander in this army. He had been accused of murdering his wife's lover. His wife's lover, by the way, was, was the son of Francis Scott Key. Does that name ring a bell? The man that wrote what is now our national anthem. Francis Scott Key's son was having an affair with Dan Sickles' wife. Dan Sickles found out about it and murdered key but he got off he was acquitted of the charge because for the first time in american jurisprudence history he claimed uh temporary insanity that that argument had never been used in our courts until dan sickles used it and he claimed it was a crime of passion he lost his mind in a fit of anger and and they acquitted him of the charge 
All right? Now, this is the man that's now commanding one of the corps in Gettysburg. And he's put at a strategic spot called Little Round Top. Very important hill. Very important, very strategic, kind of at the crux of this fish hook. It provided the, the real key to defending the rest of the forces. Sickles gets up there with his men onto Little Round Top, and he looks around. And he says, you know, I'm not sure this is a good place. I think there's a place that's better for me and my men. We'll be safer there. We'll be able to better ward off the enemy there. Sickles makes the decision to leave his post and pull his men away from this crucial hilltop to move to a place he believes is better suited for him and his men. Now what's happening, Sickles is not aware. Sickles again doesn't have the big picture. Sickles is looking out for Sickles. In fact, one historian said that if it didn't benefit Dan Sickles, he wasn't interested in it. That's the kind of man he was. They called him a rogue. They called him uh, deviant. They, they didn't have very many nice things to say about the guy, all right? But he's up here on Little Round Top, one of the most crucial spots in this defensive line. And he decides, doesn't matter what the general said, this one's going to be better. We've got, we've got a special need here. I mean, this, you know, we, I see, I'm, I'm here. He's not. This is more important. And he moves his men what he doesn't realize is Lee's got men coming that way. I'm telling you what happened is one of the cavalrymen from the Union Army happened by a little round top in time to see it was unprotected. Sent back and as a result Meade had to rearrange everything. He had to totally change his entire plan because one man decided he knew better than the general. And now forces that were in line, forces that were ready to fight, were no longer able to do what they were sent to do because one man decided he knew best. And he moved his troops out of the way, and by doing it, he made the entire Union army vulnerable. Had it not been for that one cavalryman who happened to notice, and when he did, he asked for reinforcements, and another Union troop made it there. Uh, one historian said maybe 10 or 15 minutes before the Confederates arrived. And they were able to beat back the Confederate army. I'm telling you, the North almost lost. They almost lost that battle. And had they lost that battle, they'd have lost the war. And it was all because one man decided he knew what was best. And he decided to do what he wanted to do. Most of his men were killed. He took a cannon shot to the leg or to the hip, lost his leg. The Union forces were able to beat them back and hold them off and recapture Little Round Top, but just barely. The next major site that has to be defended is Culp's Hill. I, I got to hurry on here, but, but Culp's Hill, 
The reason it was crucial is because just on the other side of Culp's Hill was the Baltimore Pike. And this was the main road that the Union troops would have to use if they're going to try to retreat. It was also their main supply route. And so if the Southern Army could take Culp's Hill, then they pretty much have won the war. Now, by the time they get through with all this and all of this renegotiating and all of this stuff that, that Sickles has just cost them, by this point, there are only 1,400 Union troops left on Culp's Hill, whereas Lee is sending in 4,500, three times as many, more than three times as many troops to take Culp's Hill, and they're succeeding. I mean, they're just walking right into gunfire, but there's enough of them that they're taking down Union troops as well. And they almost made it to the top. But by this time, it was dark and they couldn't see and they didn't know how close they were. And the darkness caused them to stop their movement. Had they pressed on just a few, in fact, I may have it in my notes here. It, it was just... Um, 500 yards. They were 500 yards from total victory. But it was too dark. And they decided to wait until morning. And by waiting till morning, when they did have a three to one advantage over the Union at night, by morning time, those numbers were totally reversed. And it was three to one union against Confederates because the Confederates stopped in the darkness. <sighs> oh God, I hope I can get through this tonight, but I'm going to tell you, here's one of the, here's one of the concerns of warfare saints. I'm not just trying to give you a history lesson tonight. I'm trying to talk to you about spiritual warfare. I, when I, when I talked to you a year ago about the specific spirit that we're fighting, I told you it's a darkness. It's a spiritual darkness that settles over you. Anybody remember that? But when I read about Culp's Hill, I thought that's exactly where we're at. If we're not careful, we're going to get 500 yards from victory. And people say it's too dark to keep fighting. It's just too dark. We don't know what's going on. We don't have light. We don't know which way to go. It's too dark. I'm praying. I'm pleading tonight. Don't give up because of the darkness. You've got to keep fighting on. You've got to keep pressing on. We may be only 500 yards from taking the most crucial spot in this entire war I'm telling you listen when you get under that darkness don't quit I'm going to tell you what you need to do you need to ask for prayer you need to get some folks praying for you 1 Thessalonians 5.25 even the apostle Paul asked for prayer brethren Pray for us. That's a simple, short little verse of scripture. But I'm telling you, it's powerful. Because here was perhaps the most powerful apostle on the face of the earth. And you know what he's saying? There's a lot of darkness out here. I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. Would somebody please pray for me? Would somebody get under a burden for me? Come on, church. I'm still preaching to you. I'm not telling you bedtime stories tonight. I'm preaching to you. we got to wake up and realize this is a war. And there's a darkness that's trying to settle in on some of your minds and some of your homes. And you got to understand, you're not going to fight this off by yourself. You're going to need help. You're going to need reinforcement.
moments. But whatever you do, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Do what you got to do. Call somebody. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Help me out of this. Get me out of this. I can't shake it by myself. I need help. I told you. I told you a year ago, I've seen it get so dark that I myself had to get others to pray for me. Brother Merriman and Brother Hilton can testify of the night a little over a year ago when it got dark for me. It got dark. It got dark. I'm telling you, I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't shake it off. I couldn't get rid of it. The darkness, the heaviness was there. And so we called them. They came to the house. Brother Bird just got on the phone. They began to pray. A threefold cord is not easily broken. They're praying. They're bombarding heaven. I'm telling you, I didn't get out of that darkness on my own. But somebody help me pray my way through it. The devil wants to fill you with pride to the point you say, well, I can do it. I can fight this. I can get No, no, no. No, no, no. No, I'm telling you, you can't. Not on your own. But at the same time, I do want to tell you this. There are moments you need to ask for prayer. But there's other moments you got to do what David did. First Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. David was greatly distressed. He's greatly distressed. For the people spake because stoning him. Even his own men wanted to kill him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved. They're grieved. Even They're, every man, every man for, for his sons, sons and for his, his daughters. daughters. But nobody else would help David. So you know what David did? David encouraged himself. He didn't give up. The Lord is God. He didn't give up. Look, you can look that word up for yourself, but the word encourage really means turn to stone. Here's what David did. He said, I'm going to set my heart as a flint. I'm going to make my heart, not that it's hard against God, but it's hard against the troubles and the trials of life. I don't care what comes my way. I'm not giving up. I'm not backing down. I'm not losing out. I am going to stand for God no matter what it costs me. If I've got to stand it alone, I'm going to stand. I'm trying, church. I'm trying. I'm, I'm getting close here. So we're into the second day, third day now, third morning of this battle. Culp's Hill, there's now enough Union forces to fight them back. So the very next day, the third day, the largest battle took place on that third day. There was a line that stretched for two miles, Confederate cannons, 160 cannons aimed at the Union armies. And in return, the Union forces had 100 cannons aimed at them. For those of you that are history buffs, this was the largest artillery barrage ever in the Western Hemisphere. The amazing thing, Brother Weems, historians tell me that the noise 
from those cannons was so loud when they were going off that organs in the men's bodies right there firing and tending those cannons, organs in their bodies literally ripped apart from, from the magnitude of the noise. Membranes in the men's ears were bursting, blood running down the side of their heads. The noise of the cannon fire. Look, war is not pretty, saints. And it's not fun. But it's necessary. And so, it was so loud, they said 40 miles away in Harrisburg, they could hear the cannon fire. 40 miles away. Now, here's what happened. The Union forces... This, this goes on. They're firing at one another. They're firing. They're not really making any ground at this point. General Meade decides to do something different. Cease fire. So they stop. They're not firing anything. Confederates keep firing for a while. Keep firing. Finally, they realize they're not destroying the army. They're just wasting artillery. The Union's not fighting back. They must have expended all of their cannonballs and they must not have anything left to fight with so now's the time boys let's go take them now here's the problem the only way to get there they're going to have to cross this meadow they're going to have to cross a 1,700 yards of open meadow that begins sloping up a hill. So we're talking meadow now. We're not talking about woods. We're talking about just an open field, 1,700 yards. And the only way for them to take the Union Army now is they got to get out there. They can't push cannons. They don't have tanks. All right, they got their muskets and they're going to have to just walk out there with their guns in their hands and try to take the Union Army. The Union Army is not fighting, so they must be out of ammo, so let's go get them. And so they begin their march. But the Union was not out of army, out of, art, out of uh, artillery. They were not, their forces were not depleted. They just were trying to draw their enemy in closer. And it worked. Now what these men didn't realize, the Union armies had some of the newest technology that was available. They had some very amazing cannons that had been developed only two years before that allowed for very deadly precision. These shells exploded on impact, but they also released time shells of shrapnel that would burst in the air over the enemy's heads. These things could take out 10 men at one time. I mean, historians say literally you're marching along and 10 guys beside you are just gone. Confederates didn't know the Union had that. And 
so the Union began to use that technology as they got within range. But the South, at this point, there's nothing they can do. If they turn their backs, they're, they're just dead meat. The only choice is keep going on. They feel like they've got enough soldiers, we can go ahead and take it. So they just keep marching to their death. As they eventually get closer, there is another kind of cannon, uh, or cannon fire, cannon shot that they use. And, and, and these were the canister shots. And these, these canister shots uh, had 28 steel balls inside one tin canister. And, and when they would fire that cannon, the canister would disintegrate and all 28 of these steel balls would be released. It's like firing a, a mega shotgun. They could take out as many as 20 men at one time. But they had to get within range. And what the Union Army was doing was just drawing the Confederates in by allowing for a lull. The Confederates dropped their guard and as a result lost the battle. I'm going to tell you, church, this is what we have to understand. We fight and we fight and we fight. And then sometimes there just comes a little lull and we think, oh, th thank God it's over. Thank God it's over. No, here's the problem. We're not looking at the whole war. And the devil wants to lull us into a false confidence. And we kick it into spiritual neutral. And we start trying to coast. And we start trying to glide. And we're not praying like we were. We're not fasting like we were. Because we're not fighting like we were. And all the devil's doing is drawing us closer in all the time. So he can bring out his really big guns. Here's what Job said in Job 16 and verse 12. I was at ease, but he that broken me, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck. I was, I was, what? At ease. I was at ease. I was at ease. You understand that term? You understand that term? I was at ease. I wasn't standing at attention. I wasn't prepared for battle. I was relaxed. I was at ease. And that's when the devil took me by the neck and shook me to pieces and set me up for his mark. Here's what the prophet Amos said in Amos 6 and 1. Woe, Woe to, them to them that are at ease, that are at ease in, Zion. in Zion. I'm appealing to this church tonight. I'm telling you, there is a battle still raging because there is a war still raging. But we've got to understand tonight where we are. We've got to understand, amen, that there is a war we are engaged in. And we're going to have to get a mindset of having a big picture. It's not just about me. It's not just about what's best for my family. It's not just about what, what makes me the most comfortable or what I think is the best advantage at this moment. No, no. We got to get a mindset. First, the kingdom. First, the kingdom. First, the kingdom. Oh, hallelujah. We've got to follow orders even when we think we know better. We've 
got to lose the perspective of how will this affect me and gain the perspective of how is this going to affect the kingdom. We cannot allow personalities to affect our performance. We cannot allow the enemy to destroy our line of communication. We can't let the darkness discourage us from pressing on. We cannot be lulled into dropping our guard, church. we got to get the big picture and seek first the kingdom. After these massive losses... More than 50,000 casualties at Gettysburg. One year later, this cemetery is going to be dedicated. They asked the governor of Pennsylvania to give the dedicatory speech. He speaks for two hours. They've also invited President Lincoln to come and just, in their words, make a few remarks. And so after two hours, the governor of Pennsylvania speaking on that battleground now cemetery, Abraham Lincoln steps to the podium and he starts out four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this nation, on this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And he began to talk about this battleground. And he said, we are here today to consecrate. But he said, in a greater sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground more than what those who've given their lives here have already done. And then in his closing remarks, he said, we've got to make sure that these dead have not died in vain. This has got to be a rebirth of freedom. What he said, a rebirth of freedom. I want to tell you, saints of God, there have been a lot of men and women who have given their lives to see the gospel go forward. I stand here today not because I came to this city to dig out of work. Nineteen eighty-two, Brother Jim Sample came here and started meeting with a couple of families. He stayed for about three years, and he called Brother L.D. Hilton to come and take the work. By the time Brother Hilton got here, there was nothing here. He basically had to start over. He met in the Deaf Club, downtown Olathe, where they would have their booze parties on Saturday night, and he'd have to go down there on Sunday morning and clean up all the beer cans and 
all the waste and junk and trash and filth and set up chairs so they could try to have church on a Sunday morning. But the Hilton spent 11 years fighting the spirits of this city until one Sunday night during the service his body succumbed to the stress and the strain and that Sunday night he collapsed with a heart attack and he went on to his reward I want to say to him tonight the Hilton I never had the privilege of meeting you but I want to tell you something you didn't die in vain did you hear what I said Brother Hilton you didn't die in vain you didn't die in vain hallelujah there's going to be a church Far greater, far bigger, far more powerful than what we see right now. But it's going to happen. And I don't know how many Gettysburgs we're going to have to live through. And I don't know how many little round tops we're going to have to defend. And I don't know how many times we're going to have to call for reinforcements on Culp's Hill. But I'm going to tell you this, we're not backing down. And you may get weary and you may give up, but hear me, new life. Here's one preacher that I'm not going to back down and I'm not going to give up. I'm not looking at what's in it for me. I'm not interested in what I'm going to get out of this, but I've got my eyes on a kingdom that's far bigger than I am. And we're going to do whatever we got to do. And we're going to fight with everything we've got with for anybody else I can't talk for anybody else but as for me and my house as for me and my house I'm going to tell you something that willpower is not going to reach zero as long as we're here it's not going to reach zero as long as we're are you hearing me tonight I'm telling you saints of God something's got to rise up in our hearts we've got the means I need some folks to get the will I don't care I don't care how long I gotta fight I don't care how hard I've gotta fight I don't care how many losses that we have to suffer I don't care how many are gonna fall by the way we're gonna press on we're gonna press on we're gonna press on we're gonna fight and fight and fight there's too much at stake there's too much at stake and thirty thousand people in this city we gotta reach them we gotta win them we gotta take this city come on have i got any soldiers in the house tonight have i got anybody in the house tonight It says you can add my will, amen, to the multiple.
Oh Jesus. Woo!